this is Deb. You are tuned in to the Planet E and Me podcast. Yep, together we're changing the world. Welcome to episode 102 of the Planet E and Me podcast. This is a show about how everyday people like you and me can help the earth. And today's episode is all about speaking out. Our featured guest is retired school teacher Mike Cunha, and Mike is ready to do just that. He's ready to speak out for the earth. So we're excited to have him on, and we'll speak with him later. But before we do, I wanted to share my own story about speaking out. I can testify that it is not always the easiest thing to do. Not that long ago, we had a developer that came to our town, and he wanted to develop 40 acres. Essentially, he just wanted to plow down the forest and put up some luxury apartments. So needless to say, I was opposed to that, as were a couple other folks that I know. So we went out and we went door to door petitioning our neighbors. Boy, we must have knocked on 200 doors. And we got all kinds of responses from people that didn't open the door to enthusiastic support to indifference Actually, we were yelled at one time by a a new father. I can't blame him because when we knocked on the door, that uh, got his dog started barking and that woke up his newborn baby. And uh, well, yeah, can't blame him. But um, the good thing was that a lot of people turned out to that planning board meeting and they spoke their mind. And what happened was the planning board denied the change to the zoning regulations, which the developer needed to get his development going. So that was the good news. But unfortunately, the good news was very short-lived because less than a month later, the developer had gone back and he got the very same zoning change back on the agenda. I would say that he used some less than upstanding methods to do that. And because the folks in town thought they'd already fought this battle, they didn't come to that meeting. They didn't even realize, many of them, that there was a meeting. And what ended up happening then was that the planning board approved the exact same zoning change that they had denied the month before. So long story short where once there was a beautiful 40-acre wooded wetland, there is now a set of luxury apartments and a huge pile of dirt. I actually have a photograph of the mountain of dirt, so just visit planetemme.com and go to the show notes and you can check that out. Eventually, they'll take away this mound of dirt and they'll build 50 to 60 more luxury homes. It's really a painful thing to witness the unnecessary destruction of nature. Once the development was approved, that next summer, um, they had to clear the land. So that meant all summer long, I had to listen to trees being cut down and I would hear them crashing to the ground. Uh, I work from home, so I, I would hear this all day long. And like I said, this is, it's a very hard thing when you love trees. Um, it was just heartbreaking. But am I glad that I got involved? Yes, definitely. There were some good things that came out of it. First of all, I know that I at least tried to do the right thing. I think um, 
that's probably what they'll put on my gravestone if I have one of those. It'll just say, she tried. And secondly, I met some really great neighbors. There's one lovely man who actually lives across the road from me that I'd never met before. And it turns out he was a baker. So he gave us a fresh loaf of bread. And I ate the loaf of bread with the delicious raspberry jam that another neighbor gave us. So that was that was quite a treat. And thirdly, it proved once again that I'm married to the most incredible man around. I was never so proud of my husband, Mark, as I was during all of that. Here's this easygoing, non-confrontational man who really does not like talking to people he doesn't know. And he was willing to go out and fight this fight even on the coldest wintry day we were out there collecting signatures. And did I mention that he hates winter? Yeah, so that was true love. And, you know, we didn't win, it's true, but I think that I'm better off for the experience if something like this happens again. I think I'll be ready for it. You just can't let the the thought of failure stop you. If you're thinking about taking on a battle like this, keep the words of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in mind when you do it. She said, be a nuisance where it counts. So basically, be a pain in the butt if you have to. And then do your part to inform and stimulate the public to join your action. And then if it doesn't work out, sure, be depressed, discouraged, disappointed at the failure and disheartening effects of ignorance, greed, and corruption, bad politics, but never give up. And at this point, some of you might be wondering, who is this Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Well, let me tell you. Those sounds you were just hearing were sounds from the Everglades. And if you've ever been there, it's a pretty amazing place miles of sawgrass and alligators and beautiful birds. And if you appreciate those things, then you're appreciating the work that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas did. Mrs. Douglas is known by many as the grandmother of the Everglades, and she spent a good part of her life fighting for them. And if it wasn't for her, we might not actually have any Everglades left. This will sound a little odd, But remember the Lorax from the Dr. Seuss book? Well, the Lorax is this ethical, independent thinking creature who's not afraid to speak out. And in the book, he says, I am the Lorax and I speak for the trees. Well, that's that's how I see Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Just imagine the Lorax came to life in human form, female human form. And then add a floppy hat and pearls and dark glasses, which she was famous for. And you pretty much have a great picture of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Yeah, some people would look at her and think, oh, what a nice little old lady. But she was a tough cookie. If you happen to be a developer wanting to drain and pave over her beloved Everglades, you'd better watch out because you were in for a fight. And not a physical fight because Marjorie was only five foot two and just about a hundred pounds. And she was nearly blind, hence the large glasses. But one of the most amazing things about her 
was that she didn't start fighting for the Everglades until she was 79 years old. And she didn't stop until she died at the age of 108. So a physical fight? No. But she could pretty much best every developer with her words and knowledge of the Everglades. She had studied them for years before writing her book, The Everglades River of Grass. This was the first time people were actually learning about the Everglades and their true potential. It was from her. She understood how essential this ecosystem was, and not just for wildlife, but for people, too. Here she is in her own words. The birds have decreased enormously for a number of reasons, probably because they're more dry lands, because the water has been let out at the wrong season. They've been very stupid about it. They have refused to admit that it's important to pay attention to natural cycles. They want it all drained, and they, they want just so much water, and, and always to be the same. Well, you can't do that. You've got to adapt your systems to the cycles. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas would go anywhere that people would listen to her. If you wanted her to talk about the Everglades, she was happy to do it. As you can imagine, not everyone loved her or the message she was bringing. If you happen to be a cattle rancher or a sugar grower who wanted to be able to freely pollute the area, then uh, you probably weren't a fan. You couldn't intimidate her either. She was introduced one time at a meeting and the crowd there booed her. And her response was, come on, boo louder. <laughs> you can do better than that. So... They actually ended up laughing, and who knows, maybe even a few listened. Eventually, she became known, like I said, as the grandmother of the Everglades. In 1993, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. And at the time, let's see, she was born in 1890. So, gosh, I guess she was 103 years old when she received this award for her lifetime achievement. How did she do it? Well, the former suffragette and continuing civil rights advocate educated herself, first and foremost, on the functions of the Everglades. She did this by talking to scientists, and also she read everything she could get her hands on. She was an avid, avid reader. That was the easy part. She didn't stop there, though. She took action. She wrote letters and newspaper articles. She made phone calls. She gave talks. She lobbied her representatives. Speaking out, that was really the key to her success. So here's my thought for those of you thinking about getting your feet wet. Write down the environmental topics that you're most passionate about. Take a few minutes to research them. You can start at planetemme.com resource page. And then set aside 15 minutes each day to do it and maybe even make it a specific time like every day from 6 a.m to 6 15 that's your planet time you might be thinking well 15 minutes is not much and you're right in one way you actually have and i calculated this 96 blocks of 15 minute periods in a 24 hour period so in a day and if you use one of them that still leaves you 95 so just taking 15 minutes. It's not too much of your day, but it can really have a powerful impact. In 15 minutes, you can call one of your state representatives 
or you can write a letter to your federal congressperson. You could draft an editorial for the newspaper or post or tweet a photo. You can sign an online petition or you could email a company to let them know how to make their product better. Uh, you can be as creative as you want when it comes to helping the earth. Some of you know that I just turned 50 and <laughs> that got me thinking about AARP because I started getting their magazine in the mail. Um, that was a little bit of a shock. But that got me thinking, imagine all the people that are retired. Like if somehow we could have a core of retired persons for the environment. Mm. I'm not sure I love that name. Retired sounds kind of like um, they put you out to pasture or something. So maybe it has to be like newly activated persons for the environment. But that's weird too, because it sounds more like you're putting water in yeast and letting it bubble. So maybe somebody can come up with a good name. But I think if we had a core of older people that were interested in working on helping the planet, that there's there'd be no stopping us. Just imagine there are about 50 million people over 65 right now. I know many of them stay really busy, but there's also a lot of people that are looking for purpose and greater meaning in their lives. And maybe they're sitting at home watching too much TV or feeling a bit lonely. So I would challenge all of those people to help with saving the earth. If everyone looking for a little meaning in their lives or a way to make a difference just took a page from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, what an amazing world we would leave behind. If you want to learn more about Marjorie and be inspired, visit the show notes page. If you want to make a difference, take a step outside your comfort zone, like our guest Mike Cunha. He's ready to do that, and we'll talk to him soon. But first, we have a special surprise for Mike and all of our listeners. Mike's granddaughter, Leah Cunha, is a singer and piano player and just an all-around multi-talented person. She's just one of those young people you look at and say, wow, I wish I'd done all that when I was her age. But anyways, today she's created a beautiful version of The Water is Wide. The song itself is a traditional British folk song, but it became popular actually with the American folk revival when Pete Seeger added it to his record called American Favorite Ballads. For us, the song can serve as a reminder that we can't do this thing alone. The task is much too great, but we can do it together. The water is wide, I cannot cross neither have I the wings to fly build me a boat that can carry two and both shall roll my love and I 
Today on Planet EME, our featured guest is the one and only Mike Cunha. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome that you're here. So I've actually known you for a bunch of years, and I wanted to have you on the show because, first of all, you're just an interesting guy. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. (laughs) And second, I just admire the way you live your life. It seems to me that you have a strong set of personal ethics And when I meet people like that, I want to know where they came from and how their growing up kind of shaped them. So can you talk a little bit about that, where you grew up and what it was like for you? Hmm. I was born in Oakland, California. My father was a fireman and my my mother was, she was a mom and a wife and the best mom ever. And uh, my father would work. Uh, be at the firehouse for two days sometimes and then he would get a day off and then he probably would work for somebody and he'd work three days at the firehouse and so he wasn't home all the time like mom was. Mm -hmm. I had a brother who was a year younger than me. We lived across the street from a car dealership and there was another one around the corner and another one up the street so it was a pretty urban environment. There was East 14th Street. That was our main street in East Oakland. The theater was within walking distance. And so just about every Saturday, we spent 35 cents and go to the movies. And we saw a serial. And then there was a, like a maybe a, maybe a 30 or 40 minute uh, Gene Autry movie or uh, Roy Rogers, somebody like that. Then there was a main feature and cartoons. A lot of cartoons. We looked forward to the cartoons. And that was our Saturday morning. Walked to church and Catholic church, Franciscans. And they all, they, they all look like monks with the brown robes and, and so forth. A lot of hellfire and brimstone at, at church. Mm-hmm. And did that make an impression on you? Or I don't think the, so. I, no. I really never... I never really understood it and um, mm-hmm. what it was all for, but I knew I had to go to church. And my brother, a lot of times, would go to church together without our parents. On the way home, we would stop at McFarland's to get either ice cream or a little box of candy to take home. And um, my father always talked to us about how he wanted to be a teacher. So that's kind of what I wanted to be. I really didn't consider anything else. And then after I became a teacher, it became part of my identity, and I didn't really look back. That's really interesting. You don't hear a lot of young boys as as little ones wanting to grow up and be a teacher. It's always, you know, a baseball player or a fireman. Yeah, so that's, yeah it was just assumed that's what I'd do. Now, but before you got to that, um, one of the things I find most fascinating about you is that you actually went into the Peace Corps. Yeah, a couple of years after we graduated from high school, we moved to a, a, a place called San Leandro. I went to a community college, 
somehow I got a uh, Peace Corps magazine, and on the cover was a picture of a woman from Sierra Leone. And I said, I want to join the Peace Corps and go to West Africa. I don't know why, and, and it just thought it was something that I wanted to do. So I sent in an application. That summer, uh, I was told that there were people that were asking about me. I guess it was the FBI or somebody oh, doing geez. background checks on me. <laughs> I worked at a cannery during the summer driving a forklift. The foreman stopped me one time and said, Hey, there's somebody came by asking about you. I guess that was uh, part of the background check or something. But then I was accepted, and we did our training in Chicago. This is this is funny because when we got there, I don't know if we took a bus or a shuttle or something to the hotel, and we stopped in front of the Hilton. And I said, wow, we're going to stay here? They said, no. So we drove around the corner, and they pulled up in front of the YMCA hotel. Oh, jeez. And that's where we <laughs> stayed, and the rooms were small enough for us to almost touch both walls on either side of our bed and it was right next to the L so the train would go by about every half hour <laughs> and it was um it was interesting good sleeping the YMCA hotel on State Street that's where we stayed during our training and the training was interesting it was long days what were you training for at this point? You We were all teachers. Oh, okay. Now Peace Corps is um, very specific compared to what it was then. And almost all the training now, I think, is in-country. We we did all our training in Chicago. It had nothing to do <laughs> with Got a real feel for West Africa. <laughs> Not at all. And so when we got there, we had to adjust to where we were going to be for the next couple of years. So that wasn't... Um, in any way similar to what we experienced in Chicago. So when you got over to Sierra Leone, how how did that go? When we got there, it was during the rainy season. A lot of the roads were kind of a mess. We were in Freetown, weren't there for very long, maybe a couple hours. From there, we got in vans and some uh, SUVs. And then we got stuck, I remember. I have a photograph of a whole line of vehicles stuck in the road. And then we eventually got to a place called Njala, where there was a university. And we stayed there for maybe, I don't know, three or four nights, I guess. And then after orientation, we ended up kind of going out to our different villages. A group of us went to a place called Bo. First year, I taught in a, a place called Catholic Training College. It was all male, and they were being certified to teach in Sierra Leone. Yeah, and I and I went from the Catholic Teacher Training College to teach at a uh, a different school close by, which was a Muslim school, Ahmadiyya Muslim Secondary School. While we were there. I taught biology for, for one year at the um, Catholic Training College. And then when I went to the uh, secondary school, I, ta I taught English for a little bit. And then I was a physical education person and a coach. I don't know how Peace Corps works now, but we were kind of in, in a setting where we had quite a bit of freedom to do whatever we wanted. 
whatever we thought was needed. And I thought maybe that what was needed was some kind of sports program. And I was thinking, what if we had Little League situation where they had ballparks and mm-hmm. and you had Little League teams? We could write to places for equipment and have leagues, maybe have a national championship. And then I said, well, you couldn't do baseball, really. Baseball would be hard to do. Mm-hmm. might be dangerous, but maybe softball and you know, maybe we could do it just in the high schools. So as I thought about it, and then I woke up, got up the next morning, and I had a bicycle. So I rode 14 miles to the next village. The uh, name of the village was Koyema. And there was another Peace Corps volunteer there, Tom Hunter. And I said, Tom is going to love this idea. So he really liked it. And after we talked about it, we sat down and we wrote 94 letters to newspapers and anybody we can think of and introduced ourselves and that you know our idea was to we needed equipment for a softball league for high school in Sierra Leone and the Christian Science Monitor picked it up a radio station in San Francisco picked it up I don't know how they found out about it but the the Vacaville Correctional Institute heard about it Oh my goodness. <laughs> and and uh we we then sent out the letters and then went on vacation. When we came back, we had tons of equipment. Oh my gosh. There was a Kiwanis club in Palo Alto that sent three piano crates full of softball equipment. Oh, how wonderful. And there was a there was a um a company in uh Connecticut that sent a couple of dozen softballs a lawyer in Baltimore, Maryland, sent us a check for $300. We got a lot of letters, too, mm-hmm. and uh, one from Lucille, and Lucille wanted to know what we wanted to call our team, so she sent T-shirts and caps. The Atlanta Braves sent T-shirts and caps, oh, baseball team. Wow. CBS, <laughs> who owned the Yankees at the time, wanted to film the whole thing, and uh, Peace Corps thought that was a little too too much. So we couldn't take advantage of that. That would have been something. Anyway, Sierra Leone was made up of four provinces. We had a big meeting where we distributed all the equipment that people needed, and each province had a, a playoff. So we got a champion from each of the four provinces, and then we had uh, semifinals and final championship for high school in Sierra Leone for softball. That's incredible. That's amazing. See what you can do with some letter writing and an idea. I think that's fabulous. And I know that Sierra Leone has had some civil wars since that time. Did you see any result of your creating the softball team in getting the communities to work together? Or was that not an issue at the time? Did you see any kind of greater community good of the softball teams? Uh, no. That was that was at the end of our second year. And we did make an effort to kind of hand it off in hopes that it would continue. But we don't think it did. And then, like you say, there was the Civil War. So a lot of, a lot of what was done by anyone just kind of fell apart anyway. A lot had to start 
all over again, mm -hmm. uh, including rebuilding schools and, and what have you. Even so, it must have been quite a good experience for you. In many ways, it sounded like so you weren't there at that time. And I always feel like it's it's everybody should have the opportunity to go live in another country and experience the way other people live and not as a tourist as somebody that's actually in the community it can't but help change who you are and change your perspective so how did being in the Peace Corps kind of shape your worldview? Most of us were right out of college so you don't know much when you get out of college. <laughs> When you get out of college, unfortunately, you know, you I think, that way. <laughs> you know, you might have a lot of stuff in your head, a lot of factoids in your, in your head, but you really don't have a, a worldview or, or, or an idea of what life is like. There's a lot more to learn than just going to class and passing a course. You've got to experience these things. And one of the misunderstandings I think that people have of Peace Corps is that you go to these places all over the planet and you make all these fantastic contributions to someone else's country. Mm -hmm. When the people who get the most out of this experience are the Peace Corps volunteers themselves. And then you come back and you're able to have ideas or even the courage to try new things and to take risks in your own country. Maybe then you're able to contribute more to someone else. So you came back from Sierra Leone and eventually you became a high school teacher. Now, someone say that the Peace Corps is the toughest job you'll ever love, but I bet that could be said of teaching high school in the city, which you did for many years. So um, what would you say were the rewards and challenges of that experience? If you want to learn how to teach, teach in a city. I taught in Oakland for, I guess it was six years, at a junior high school. And you in taught the biology there? Is that what you... I taught physical education. Okay. Yeah. So, so like in the Peace Corps. Now, eventually you came to Connecticut. Yeah. And weren't you a science teacher here? Am I getting that wrong? <laughs> Not at first. Okay. When it came to Connecticut, I was hired as a physical education teacher at Weaver High School. And I taught physical education for three years. So that was in 1977. We had some budget problems. They were going to make some cuts. And somebody retired in the science department, and I made a, a request to be transferred to the science department. And it was approved. It was a good thing that I minored in biology when I was in college, and I ended up with a, um, a teaching credential that said I was certified to teach physical education or biology. I got approved, and I taught science for the next 18 years. At some point, I decided to go get my master's and get certified in physics. And that was one of the best things I ever did, was to be certified in physics, because that is the most fun class to teach. Your teaching evolves, and I guess maybe when you ask about Peace Corps, maybe one of the things that we learned about Peace Corps is that you can actually try things and take risks, and a lot of good will come out of that. And maybe not. But the main thing is to take the risk, and there's always a possibility that you're going to fail. In fact, if you're trying something new, 
you got to expect to fail. You pick yourself up and you, you kind of regroup and retool and do whatever you have to do. And, and then you become successful. Right. And everybody benefits. That's kind of the way I did my whole teaching career. Sure, and you're serving as a great role model to your students as well by doing that, showing them it's okay to try new things, it's okay to fail. The important part is that you're trying, you make improvements, try it again. It's like a big science experiment, right? (laughs) I guess, yeah. Yeah. So actually, having been in science, you've been interested in the environment for a long time now, and you mentioned to me that lately you've been especially concerned about the issues surrounding climate change. So what are you witnessing and reading about that convinces you of the importance of taking action right now on on climate change? Well, I've been interested in taking action for a long time. There's some things that we did. In 1969, I was living in San Leandro, east of Oakland. There was a big push at that time for um, something we called ecology. Mm -hmm. There were ecology centers that were cropping up all over the place, and there'd be somebody there that you'd go talk to and get literature or... Uh, information about the environment, about things that you can do to save resources, really. And the big thing that was just starting out was recycling. And so I had a, a kind of a recycling center at my house on Sundays, and people would bring their bottles and cans to my house, and we'd have to separate them at that time. And then when uh, we, I had a crowbar or something that we'd break the, the glass with, the bottles and when when a drum was full I would load it up onto my van and drive it to a hazel atlas glass company and um, they weren't too far away and I'd drive in and uh, drive over a scale they'd weigh me and then I'd go empty the drums and go back and get weighed again and then they'd give me a little receipt and pay me for the glass. Wow, that's that's pretty interesting to do that on your own, <laughs> like that. Not as part of the government or anything, it was just yeah, your right. own initiative. Right. So, And then at the junior high school where I was teaching, I had a kind of an ecology club. One of the things that we did that was pretty successful was we had, there was a lake in the, right in the center of Oakland. And Lake Merritt was this um, kind of a man-made lake and there were a lot of lot of recreation on the lake. And so we went down one Saturday, and I took a group of kids with me, and we filled three dump trucks full of uh, all kinds of junk that we pulled out of the lake, cleaning Lake Merritt. That was a very successful um, activity that we did. So you've been involved in doing things to help the planet, and now you're thinking about climate change and all the issues surrounding that and you have three wonderful granddaughters what kind of world would you like to see your generation leave for them it would be nice if we didn't have to worry about a lot of the things that you see in the news today you know i i don't i don't know if we're going to be able to fix it and but we sure as heck need to try Eugene Robinson had an op-ed in the Washington Post, I think, the other day about this very thing, about the Green New Deal. And I think that's what has to happen. Something like a Green New Deal 
like yeah. FDR's New Deal, yeah. only for the environment. And I'm I'm pretty convinced that whatever we do with the environment is going to help the economy too at the same time. I, I know what people are afraid of. Afraid of. Uh, making is it just making change that people are afraid of I don't know I don't know what scares people about making changes I don't think that's what life is about either we it's about learning and um taking steps and being uncomfortable like you said and making that risk and I think that's the only way we can get to the change that you're talking about if everyone together as a society were willing to get out of that comfort zone that rut and say okay what can I personally do you know maybe I'm doing this on an individual level what's the next level and so I'm so excited that you are willing to do something a little out of your comfort zone. So um, tomorrow we're actually going to go to the state house and lobby our representative, our state representative. You're going to talk to them about climate change. And um, do you remember what you first said when I asked you about, (laughs) do you want to do this? Do you remember what your response was? I don't remember. (laughs) I think it was something like, well... I've never considered myself an activist. Oh, no. <laughs> Something like that. But um, I think it's great that you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and, and do this. And and then we're going to videotape it. And hopefully other people will see that it, it's not that hard. You're, you're basically going in and in some ways you're talking to your neighbor about an issue that's important to you. And so after doing this... What are you hoping to take away from that experience tomorrow? I'm not sure what to expect. Mm-hmm. And that's scary, yeah. right? That's yeah. a little... Yeah. Makes you nervous. Yeah. But um, maybe there's maybe there's something else I can do that might make more of an impact. Just sitting around and stewing over it or talking on the phone with someone maybe is not my idea of actually making changes that, that are going to have an impact. The planet is, is in such trouble that the solution, the thing that's going to keep us from maybe going extinct, it's, it's got to be a worldwide solution. Preventative measures have to be worldwide and not uniform either. Places like the United States and China and UK are going to have to do more than everybody else. And that's fact. I mean, let's just do the math. Mm-hmm. We also use more fossil fuels than exactly. everybody else. So we should be exactly. doing more than everybody else. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So I'm excited for tomorrow and we hope that everyone listening to the podcast will watch Mike's video Um, you can visit our website planetenme.com hopefully you'll see that lobbying is a pretty easy thing to do and a great way to get your voice heard and make a difference and Mike is also hoping to raise a few dollars for his favorite environmental charity Natural Resources Defense Council exactly (laughs) and I picked them because they had a pretty good I like the mission, and and 
it's right on. Excellent. And they really are a great charity. Actually, our last featured guest chose them as well. So we will get that uh, donation button up there on the website. If you'd like to donate, that would be wonderful. $5, $500, whatever works for you. For those of you who'd like to hear more of Planet EME, please consider subscribing. We're on iTunes and Stitcher now. And Mike, thank you for being here today. You're a wonderful guest, and I'm excited for our trip tomorrow. Yes, me too. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> that was great.